Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Dr. Yossi Sheffi, Professor of Engineering Systems and Director of the Center for Transportation and Logistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's also the author of The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work. Dr. Sheffi joins us on today's show to talk about the challenges in logistics and what AI brings to the table beyond avoiding unplanned downtime in the form of predictive maintenance and inventory. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Professor Sheffi, thank you so much for being with us on the program this week. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely a pleasure to have you. Now, taking a look at logistics and manufacturing from a high level, and that now, at least at this point, coming out of COVID, a lot of leaders in the space have had contact with AI in the form of predictive analytics, being able to make greater assurances of when things are going to be able to arrive on time, predictive inventory. What do you see as the current largest challenges currently facing logistics and manufacturing leaders when it comes to technology? Well, first of all, what you just said, the being able to know where things are coming is nowhere where people hope it to be. The main reason is not the AI. The AI is there in terms of analyzing data. The main reason is getting the data. And getting the data is still not there, even with the, the Internet of Things and having sensors all over the place. There are some areas where you can. If you ship with FedEx, you can because they put a sensor in the container in the package. But uh, a lot of it has nothing to do also with the shipping. It has to do with the fact that somebody, the supplier, cannot have the part because they have a strike, because they have something happen, and there are three or four tiers up in the supply chain, and you don't even know about it until something doesn't arrive. So visibility into the upcoming parts, material, is a tough problem because in many cases, you don't even know who the suppliers are. You know that what's called tier one suppliers, those that you pay them. But they have also suppliers, and those suppliers have suppliers, and those suppliers up to the mine or, or the field if it's a food product. And in many cases, you don't even know who they are. So it's hard to have complete visibility, and it's still a challenge. So e even with available current AI tools, just want to make sure you, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Even with current available AI tools, it's hard to see kind of past that as I almost think of it, like degrees, like almost teenagers talk about like being six degrees away from celebrities. But in yeah. terms of that third degree of supplier, that's where we, even with current AI tools, are having a really hard time being able to predict outcomes is at that kind of third generation, that third degree of relationships between, you know, folks in a supply chain. Absolutely. And the problem is not the AI. The AI can analyze the data and can analyze a lot more data than before. And, you know, large models can analyze, collect a lot of data. The problem is getting the data. Yeah. So it, getting and, and the basic data of where the part is, where it is, is the production line in supply that is supplier, 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 suppliers has a problem somewhere. And I don't even know about it. That's the issue. So it's still, you know, not quite there, even though it's an area of intense investment. 
Right, right, exactly. Now, when we talk a lot about, you know, data problems in a space like financial services, the natural inclination is, oh, this data is somewhere, you know, these banks are old, you know, it's probably just in paper somewhere deep within the organization and needs to be brought to life or awakened through document processing or some sort of tool to digitize a lot of that text language. This seems like I'm not sure, or maybe this is best in the form of a question. Is this such a large and complex data problem that we can't foresee even like a big player or a monopoly being able to have even that much data to be able to have a, a that deep an understanding of a supply chain where they can anticipate problems from that third degree we've been talking about? Look, yeah. first of all, the issue is the data that we are interested in is not data that is a year old. Right. It's a data that is today. We want to know what's going on, mm-hmm. what's going on on the way to us. So the fact that a year ago somebody wrote some paper is irrelevant. Right. Now, the, where the AI can help is simply, for example, when maps, you know, when you drive, it mm-hmm. actually predicts the congestion in, towards your destination. Right. It's actually the same engine that AI is using for for prediction. And this is something that we use every day. We don't even think about it. In fact, you know, Google Map is a digital twin right. because there's the, there's the infrastructure and there's the map on the computer or on your phone or in your car. And you use the digital twins, but it gets data all the time from the physical twin because it has data on the congestion, on road closure, whatever. So you see that AI is being used for certain amount of forecasting that can be done because they can collect the data. Right. Google can collect data from all the cars that are already in the road. So it's his congestion because they're not moving. Mm-hmm. And perfectly, almost one of the many technologies that it just makes sense that became so much developed over the course of COVID in terms of, I mean, think about you know, even the standards that they had for the vaccine in terms of delivery and and being able to make sure that materials were being transported under very, very strict conditions. And you, you saw a lot of this, you know, people tend to think of, oh, like, oh, yeah, AI really advanced in life sciences and how to develop viruses. And that trickled out, my friends, straight into manufacturing. A lot of those principles can just be applied to your Amazon packages on down. In this space, what do you think would surprise Surprise people in terms of, you know, AI technologies that had nothing to do with the pandemic or were kind of in progress for a very long time. And maybe, you know, we're finally getting our, our flying skateboards right now, so to speak, from a, from a long promised future. So, so the main use of AI in some of the main uses of AI in logistic and supply chain management have to do A, with warehouses. Right. Warehouses. Whereas robots are being implemented in a breakneck speed right now. Now, it started before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, it just going on a hockey stick, you know, started going very fast. Right. And all of the place people are automating, in, installing robots in warehouses. And these robots are driven by lots of AI. Now, autonomous trucking is, is on the horizon. Autonomous trucking will come more, very likely, well before autonomous truck, autonomous cars. Because they can drive on a, you know, the highway, especially in the south of the United States, not in right. Boston and, and Minneapolis, where it snows a lot. But in the south, when the weather is nice, the roads are wide, on the internet, sure, you'll have an autonomous truck. But there's also a lot of other things. I, I know companies are doing risk management analysis, looking at what is the chance that a supplier will have a problem. So they are looking at 
all so you can look at Dennett Bradstreet, you can look at other financial, but this is backwards looking information. You want forward looking information or at least current information. Turns out that one of the best indicators comes from just media. If the media has a lot of mention of this particular company or supplier or plan that is executive leaving, some problem with bank, some failed merger and acquisition, they um, lengthen learn of term into their suppliers and people are complaining. You can pick up this chatter with a large language model and analyze it and bring it to the attention of the people of the original equipment manufacturer that can look back and say, what's going on with suppliers? Send people out there. So there are things like this that are happening simply because of the ability to analyze things that are not numbers. So text, for yeah. example. The ability to, to look at immense amount of data and put it all together. So it, you, What you just described, I've heard a, talked a lot about mostly in a lot of like retail spaces, but it, it gets called a couple of different names. One of them is voice of the customer, and that's where you're looking at the signal, you know, outside of the organization, you know, bad reviews like Delta in, in the, the airlines probably have a lot of attention focused on the voice of their customer. But then that's kind of leading into a something of a new discipline that we've we've had a couple of conversations about kind of under a larger umbrella called topic search, where you're kind of looking at the broader signal through LLMs, through text of how is a brand talked about in various contexts, both outside the organization in terms of voice of the customer, also internally, you know, and, and it gets called something called topic search. And I, and I know that this has been on the radar of a lot of financial services leaders, retail, a couple of other sectors, but I just want to make sure even manufacturing leaders, you have a higher likelihood of, of being able to ascertain supply chain problems through these tools of media surveillance rather than building the network, say, within, I guess, your drivers or even building that into the automatic drivers that we, we see coming down on the horizon. So, Matthew, it actually already goes a step wow. further. Wow. And the step further is that you don't only listen to customers saying, you know, for the, you know, this hard drive is failing well before it should fail or something like this. Right. So the company collects all this data, but it goes a step further. It started putting stuff into actively putting stuff into the chat room, into the Facebook, into all the complaints and saying, well, company X knows about it and it's already working and there'll be a fix in, you know, in two months and there'll be a software fix or hardware fix. The company starts answering this and it's by chatbots that they're answering this automatically. So the company is already working on this, but it gets the information out. So it doesn't only collect information, it influences the marketplace. So wow. that's where we are Really interesting stuff. So to what extent should marketing leaders be thinking about conversational AI? Because when you when, when you do talk about it in those other sectors, it's transformative. It's something they got to think a lot about. They can't just, you know, jump in. I don't think you'd recommend that for any AI adoption. But to what extent should should manufacturing leaders be thinking about this? So the question is, which manufacturing? Gotcha. If, there's a, if there's a manufacturing that sells to the consumer, absolutely. But many, many manufacturers sell to other manufacturers. They just buy parts or they contract manufacturers. Or if you look about a company like Flex or JBuild, they build parts and computer for Microsoft or, you know, they build parts for GM. They build, they, you never see something that has the brand of Flex. They just build for other people. They're what's called 
contract manufacturers, and they have suppliers who just sell to them. These people are talking directly to the customers. They don't need the chatbot because the, the number of customers is small. They are businesses. They know them. They have relationship with them. They pick up and they talk to each right. other on the dial. However, companies that sell to consumers, if you are GM or Ford or, or Toyota, absolutely you need always to hear the voice of the consumer and analyze it and find out what's going on before the some safety regulator will find out that things are falling apart. And you have to have a force recall. Rather than that, you can be proactive and find out that things are failing or not working. So you have to collect a lot of information. And even before you collect it from dealers and garages, mm-hmm. you can collect it from online conversations. Yeah. People, people are talking about it. So, and that probably sounds like a, just a, a function of, of how public facing they are. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering for the B2B group, that group of manufacturers, what are the foremost use cases in AI that we might not be talking about? I know I appreciate that you shot right away from predictive, you know, maintenance and supply sure. chains, you know, oh, that's there, but it actually goes way deeper. Where does it go deeper, say, for the, you know, the B2B manufacturers? Okay. So there's a lot of the, the B2B manufacturers say the contract manufacturers do a lot of design. They are now they are now AI infused program that suggests design and they work on it. The, the engineer may have or the, the system engineer may have an initial design. A program will work on this or suggest initial design and keep updating it, keep getting better and better. It's basically a conversation between the AI and the and the designer. So this already is taking place at some some companies. A lot of it has to do with the concept that we mentioned before, digital twins. The digital twins is now being implemented more and more in companies because what can it do? So let's say you are a company that makes aircraft engines. You are not selling this to the public. Nobody buys aircraft engine for the backyard. You're selling it to airlines, you're selling it to aircraft manufacturer. But you want to continue monitoring this engine throughout its life. So you build a digital twin, and whenever the airport take off, whenever it encounters some ash in the air mm-hmm. or some other dust, there are sensors that send the data immediately to the digital twin at the, at the manufacturer, and they see what's going on, and they can do what if scenario on this, how do we keep mm-hmm. it, do she replace this part, should we change it? All of this done by B2B manufacturing mainly. You, you mentioned this digital twin, I, I, and I just want to be absolutely clear for our audience on what this is, but it just sounds like an in-facility like control appar- version of the same exact device, but one that you can simulate You know, going through what's it's out an, there. We always had simulation of gotcha. the device. Of the difference is there are now continuous data connection between the physical asset and the device. Right, okay. Think back on Google Maps or Waze. It continuously, the physical map, the physical infrastructure sends signals to your car, to whatever is, to the to the device, the, to the digital representation that you have in your car, on your phone, whatever. So this is, this are, and by the way, there's also a backward loop because they ask you, Google asks you if you see, you know, to update stuff and they get it from, from people. So you have back and forth Data going between the digital twin and the actually physical asset. Same thing, same thing with um, you know the aircraft engine. It goes through its paces, it flies, it uh, whatever. The digital twin gets updated automatically. So you have a representative a representation. By the way, 
It looks quite real. Of you course. actually have it on the computer and it looks very real. And you can try things out. You can try what if, what if we'll do this first and then later and change. You try it on the computer. And then once you get it right, you send it back to the physical asset. Right. So this is all, you know, interesting. And it's all done with advanced AI. You bring up aircraft engines as an example. I just want to be sure though, do digital versions, do digital twins as a use case, are they a bit more widespread than say, just I immediately recall this context of, you know, you it's got to be a manufacturer with like, like a single very important client. You know, you're not monitoring, you know, a zillion aircraft engines, you know, going everywhere across the country. It's like, it, it seems like a very isolated siloed like observation process, or can it be scaled in that way? I guess is my it's question. Actually, GE monitors, depending on how much the, the aircraft manufacturer and the, the airline actually, how much they're willing to pay for it. But for example, there are certain airlines like what the, the Dubai airline, Emirates. Right. Emirates have hundreds of aircraft. Every engine is monitored by GE. Right. Every, all the time. So, and and go back and forth and they that. So they have, they have uh, the number is in the thousands they are monitoring, right. not, not just just one. By the way, there are companies that start doing it on trucks, uh, starting, or, and, and this can happen on several ways. There's a, the company that owns the trucks, may say, may have, now trucks can come with a whole host of sensors in the engine, in, in, in the transmission, right. and everything. They build, the manufacturer is now building the digital twin of each truck, and the question is, do you buy it? Because it costs money. So they sell you the truck, and they sell you the digital twin. Right. So you can, so you can buy digital twin for every one of your thousand trucks, and then you monitor all of them, and then you buy a dashboard that looks at all of them and tell you which truck is in which condition, and so forth. So it's. And, and I mean, getting, and it sounds like something that you know you don't just use it for the product that you yourself are selling, but it, it's a technology that can also be used for you know your logistics fleet. You know, it can be, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it doesn't just sound like a product focus technology no, at all. Yeah, it can be used for a lot of different functions. It can be used by, it can be used by the, by the consumer, by the user, yeah. of, not just by the manufacturer, by the user, however it's, however it's done. That's part of the business case for it. How do you monetize? How do you make a business case? But principle is the same, regardless of who's using it. Of course. And I think this is where we get into, especially in the manufacturing side, where we see a lot of a lot of workflows changing in a way that are inevitable from an automation standpoint. You were talking before that, you know, an you know, autonomous trucking is going to come to, you know, it's going to come to trucking before it comes to regular driving. And of course, we've got a we've got a episode that we're just about to touch on that'll get into those workflows. But what do you think are the immediate implications that manufacturers need to know in terms of of that from and when we say autonomizing, we're, we're using that word very very specifically, this is not automation to the point of, oh, you'll have a guy, you know, sitting in a warehouse somewhere playing kind of a video game version and driving the car. No, this is the drivers are out. It's it's completely autonomized. There's no human beings involved in that. And, and that's what we mean when we okay. use it. But what are the short term challenges, implications? And, and where do you see uh, that sussing out? Short term, there are not so many challenges because this is not going to happen in the short term. In the full sense, it's a and and the issue with this in many cases. Look, Amazon put robots in all of warehouses, and at the same time, after they did it, they hire a million workers in the warehouse. Yep. So right now we see a lot of it is a combination of 
people and machines. And the question is, one of the important questions is how to train people to work with different workflows, how to operate the robots, how to operate all the autonomous devices. So, and this requires, in many cases, relearning, re-education, upgrading of skills. This is a challenge, of course. But but it doesn't happen overnight. There's a, a I must say, there's a, as we say in my business, when there's, when everything is said and done, there's a lot more said than done. Because this requires investment, it requires time, it requires changing workforce. It's not something that happens overnight. Even, and, and then there's another issue. There's the issue of social acceptance. I'll give you an example. For example, uh, trucking, would you feel comfortable when there's a big truck with no driver running right behind right. you on the road? And, and, and we're coming to this place with doctors in healthcare too, of do you, you know, if we can put all the data in front of patients that say, you know, autonomized surgery is just has better outcomes, but the minute you have a bad outcome, it's going to take on a, a different emotional tenor, a different ethical tenor entirely because there was no human being in the process to say, don't do that surgery or, or handle the scalpel in that way. And it's the same thing with drugs. Yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. Today, 787, 777, the modern aircraft, A350, is actually a drone. It can st- it can drive from the gate on its own, fly on its own, get back to the gate with nobody in the cockpit. Would you go on an airplane when there's nobody in the cockpit? Exactly, seat? exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be a matter of trust, and I think that's even something we're gonna have to reckon with on on the employment side of like, you know, your job is useful, but you you are your presence is about trust, not even about competence. I think that's gonna change yeah. work entirely. Give you another example in 1945. 15,000 elevator operators in New York went on strike. New York came to a grinding halt. People were afraid to go to an elevator without an operator, even though they always went in the elevator. It was simple. Take it down, take it up. There was nothing to it. But they were afraid to go on. And New York had to settle with them. And it took another two years, and Otis started coming with the automated elevators. But it, it's, it's psychology, you know. It's, as you say, it's trust. Yeah. And and I mean, I think I think especially, you know, and you've had some really wonky headlines of late when in terms of, you know, Web 3.0 technologies, blockchain comes to mind where, you know, there's a, a ton of promise on the trust side. There's truth to it, but it's, you know, it's got marketing problems. It's got execution problems. And even in AI might have a, a much more robust case to be made in these use cases elsewhere in terms of like, especially the dynamics you're talking about in, in terms of like technology that comes around might initially destroy a certain kind of job, but then invent thousands of others, you know, and I think that's that's kind of where where we are in terms of the mainstream media conversation. And I think the the example you just bring up of the of the elevators is pretty telling, especially because I was a child who grew up, you know, if I had ever said or or complained about the doors closing on an elevator, that is, you know, that's considered such a childish fear now, you know, that but we needed a whole job for it, you know, not long ago, like not as as early as the 30s, you know, just in terms of that, where do you think that manufacturing leaders should be, you know, focusing human attention now, or at least thinking about workflows in terms of optimal use of human judgment, or, or even to just build trust in the examples you were citing? Okay, I'll tell you what, what I think and, and point out to a specific problem. And what we think mostly, if you know, if you use ChatGPT, for example, you know that it's, it makes mistakes. 
it's also hallucinate somewhere. It, it will mix up stuff. You ask him to write a paper in economics, it will invent papers and conferences that never existed. It will just, we call it hallucination in the, in the AI vernacular. Now, so we need people, whether it's robot, whether it's all kind of automation, AI, whatever, we need people who can look at it and say, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense. This, we, you know, we understand the underlying process, we don't. So we need people with five to 10 years of experience to understand what's behind it. So the problem that I see is how do we hire people with five to 10 years of experience? The problem is the starting jobs. The starting jobs may, may be pressure on the starting job. And I see there are lots of fixes for this, but one that I point out in my book is going to something like the German system, that people, instead of going to four years college, go to four years, but it's half college and half internship. So that Germany is using it in Spain. You know, more than half of the German young, young people are going to this system. It's a combination. The government specify how to do it. They apply to a company, and the company apply to the, to the local college, and they work together. They get the theory, they, and they get the practice. They come in, they have experience. So uh, we, we don't think, we still, most American mothers would like to say the son goes to college and it's, uh, and, and, and end up with debt and end up with. <laughs> with <laughs> yeah. In America, in America, especially for a lot of the, anything media or entertainment adjacent, they had free internships where you got plenty of experience, but not a lot of pay. <laughs> and that, that's, that tends to be a, a little bit more of how, how the Americans approach a lot of that, you know, entry level experience, but you're right in terms of that skills gap. And, and having that essential organizational context, I guess that's going to be the next question to ask. I mean, you need to be, and this sounds inherent in the German system, of you need it to be built into the point where you already have people that are being processed over years, you know, and can have that institutional knowledge of the organization with which to be able to guide large language models, even incredibly bespoke ones, to be better acclimated to how a, a company talks about itself. 70% of the people who go to the system are hired by the company when they do apprenticeship. So the company ends up hiring them. So th that's exactly, exactly what you are saying. But let me add point that just as we go more and more to digitize everything, we have a lot of danger with it, including cyber attacks. And again, going to the people with experience, in 2017, when Russia attacked Ukraine with a cyber attack, also they, many companies around the world came to a grinding halt, including Maersk. Yeah. With all, if they couldn't co communicate with anybody, all their screen went dark, but they had a lot of people who knew how to write manifests by hand and fax them and knew where to fax them and all of this. They had the experience that people could take over. That's, we need it. So the, how do we create it? And there's another problem. If people are just monitoring the AI or whatever, the, the robot, they can become complacent. It's actually yeah. much harder doing the work yourself. It's just sitting here and monitoring somebody, some automated system who's doing the work. <sighs> yeah. And it's... Uh, and it's a tug of war. I mean, we've seen this. Okay. I'm the son of a dentist. And in not too long ago, I, I tried to revolt against my dentist, who is not my parent any longer. I've, they've since retired. But I tried to revolt against the, the electric brush for just that reason, because I'm not thinking about it. 
I'm not thinking about where to put the brush in my teeth, but it, it brings up a problem with technology, which is to what point are you relying on it? Because, you know, pound for pound, even if you're you're lazy about it, that electric brush is just going to turn better results. And the thing about a lot of this AI technology to really square the circle of this of this analogy from my own childhood, but you know, AI is going to be able to show you its results. So if you're complacent and it's still showing you that it's the better way, it's going to lead to an, an, an all new tug of war. Any thoughts on that? I, I, I see, I, I see yeah. you're trying to chime in here. The bigger thing is that AI, to get the acceptance that it needs to get, it needs to be able to explain how it got the result. Right, that it got. black box and problems. Right now, it does not. Right now, even the people who write the code can't quite explain some of the results. So, in fact, there's a DARPA, you know, the research arm of the military, is funding the development of a whole new system that try to explain how it got to whatever it got because it doesn't exist. That's a problem. People people say, okay, we we look at several investments and they suggest do A or B. How did they get to this? It makes no sense. It makes you know. Especially and, as this technology starts to bring about deeper insights that we'd never be able to detect on our own. Yeah. Exactly. And, and by the way, otherwise we need it because it can bring insight that we didn't have before. So if it brings insight that we didn't have before and we feel this makes no sense. But if it explains to you, then it makes perfect sense. So it needs to be able to explain itself. And there's some work going in this direction because we are far from it. Of course. I think that's a good bookmark for our first episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Sheffy, for being with us on the program for, for, for this round. We're excited to have you back. Thank you very much. Thank you. A very important point brought up right around the 21, 22 minute mark. If my ability to estimate how our editing is going to roll out by the time this episode airs is, is still intact. But I think Dr. Sheffy brought up a very particular point just with all things autonomous vehicles right now and something we're seeing on the white collar side. And I brought up in some detail in comparison to healthcare is that I'm not sure we're ready to trust AI yet as a culture to the point of driverless vehicles, autonomized surgeries. I don't even know if autonomized surgeries will happen in my lifetime as much as it's dangerous to make predictions of any kind in any direction in our current state of AI adoption. The point here is it's going to take people getting used to these systems first in order for it to be standardized that there's no longer a human there to perform that task. I'm writing a white paper right now on driver assistance systems, and something that came up in the course of that white paper was a statistic that read that individuals will only trust a system if it works for them seven out of 10 times. So once they're used to it working seven out of 10 times, then they'll be okay with trusting that system into the future. What that looks like for driverless cars, or as Dr. Sheffy was pointing out, pilotless planes, cockpitless planes, it's going to be a very different world. And trying to anticipate now how willing people are to trust that kind of world is a little opaque at this time. But I think through conversations that we're having with smart people like Dr. Sheffy, I think the path forward is going to be illuminated much sooner rather than later. 
And speaking of future conversations with smart people like Dr. Sheffy, you can tune into the August 10th episode of today's show to hear part two with Dr. Sheffy. And that episode is titled The Role of Humans in AI Enhanced Logistics Workflows. So we're going to be diving more into where else in logistics that we're going to be seeing automation entrench itself into different workflows and how that's going to have an effect on the human presence in those systems. Very, very interesting stuff. Very, very excited for that next episode. For now, on behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast. <laughs>